0: Please note the storyteller, Murder Most Foul, contains descriptions of a crime scene and injuries that some people may find disturbing. October 11th, 1999, 9.30pm. A woman's body is found face down behind her door in the upmarket west end of Aberdeen, an affluent city in the northeast of Scotland. Her neck has been cut so deeply and repeatedly it's almost severed. She's lying on bedding which has been saturated with her blood. The discovery of her body that night changed many lives forever, mine included. This is the storyteller, Murder Most Foul, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Trequere.
1: It's a shock, it was the utter life-changing thing and you never ever thought it would ever happen to you.
2: I can't conceive what somebody has in them that makes them think that it's going to be okay if they go downstairs with a big knife.
3: It wouldn't have taken much more to sever the net, so that tells you how bad it was.
0: I would love to know exactly what happened that morning.
2: The twists and turns and the, you know, there were all sorts of things that made this a different investigation.
4: That sort of unfolded almost like a, a paperback crime novel.
0: Murder, noun, the unlawful killing of one person by another. In Scotland, under Scots law, Murder occurs where a person kills another either intentionally or with wicked recklessness. Murder Most Foul, a line from Shakespeare's Hamlet, is actually in the dictionary as an example of using the word foul with synonyms, evil, wicked, sinful, immoral, bad, corrupt, ungodly, vile, the list goes on. This isn't a Shakespearean story, but it is indeed Murder Most Foul. A young innocent woman murdered in an extremely violent attack in her own home. Her killer, cold, calculating, relentless. But 20 years on, the question still remains, why? I'm Isla Traquair, a storyteller. I was the young journalist who covered this murder, my first of many. And now I'm going to share with you this story, which is still as shocking today as the day it happened. But I won't just be retelling the facts. I'm hunting down the people at the heart of this case. We'll hear from the victim's family. Police, the forensics, observers, and possibly the killer. Scotland. A country of mountain wilderness, glacial glens, lochs, rivers, castles and some of the world's finest whiskies. It is for many an idyllic place to grow up, especially in the countryside. Melanie Sturton grew up in arguably one of the most beautiful spots favoured so much by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert that it's known as Royal Deeside and is still enjoyed by the royals today. Balmoral Castle is just a short drive from Ballater. And locals are so used to various members of the royal family popping up that they either leave them alone or, if prompted, interact as though they would any other local, musing about the weather, which is a default conversation starter in Scotland. When Princess Diana died in 1997, the royal family privately mourned in their Scottish retreat and the locals seemed almost protective of them, keeping secret their sightings, interactions or insights into their grief. Little Melanie Sturton was one of those locals who'd grown up seeing the Queen, princes and princesses. She thought it was normal, just as locals saw her as normal, despite being born with partial facial paralysis and a club foot. It was the perfect place for this petite girl with only half a smile to feel safe and accepted as she grew into a woman. Her upbringing gave her the confidence to move to Aberdeen, known as the Granite City and oil capital of Europe. But the brave move for this country girl turned out to be fatal. I'm driving out to Bankery to a garden centre and I'm meeting a woman to have a cup of tea and probably a cake, as often people do in this northeast part of Scotland. But uh, our conversation's going to be a little bit different. Susan is the mother of Melanie Sturton, a young woman who was murdered in 1999. And I was the journalist that covered the case. I was 19 years old at the time. And now I'm 39 and it's been a long time since I've seen her. She's a very sweet woman, very, very lovely lady. And if people didn't know and they would hear us greeting, they'd probably think, oh, there's, you know, two friends who haven't seen each other for a long time. But the thing that binds us is a really gruesome murder. The gruesome murder of her daughter, which had a huge impact on me as a as a teenage journalist. I still remember the first day going and standing at the location on Great Western Road and police tape. And we didn't really know much detail at that point. And um, the story that unfolded was... It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable because such a an unlikely victim but it was the perpetrator the perpetrator was the most surprising and to this day we still don't really have an answer it just doesn't add up and I think 20 years on that's something that Susan, her mother and I would like to try and, and get to the bottom of just feel there must be something to explain why Melanie had to lose her life in such a horrible way. So I'm on my final turn before um, pulling into the garden centre. Let's see where the story takes us. How are you? Give me a heart. Oh my God! I'm your feet? No, you're not hurt. You're not hurting me at all. <laughs> <laughs> How
1: are you? I'm fine. You look yes. really well. Thank you. I love the hair color. Oh, oh, it's just it's, it's just been done. It's a pretty dark.
0: <laughs> I like it. Turns out the garden centre was a tad noisy for recording an interview, so we relocated to the quietest spot I could find: the grounds of a castle. Now, for those of you not attuned to the Scots tongue, you'll hear some words in here such as ken, which means no, k n o w, nay. Which means no no. Fit means what. Far means where. You'll get it. So we're sitting out in the countryside of Aberdeenshire, um actually in the grounds of a castle. And with me here today I have the lovely Susan Patrick. And we've known each other for quite a while now. Oh, yeah. yeah but <laughs> met met in not not such great circumstances. But yeah. um um thank you very much for for taking part in this I'm glad Um, to yeah and before we get into it how did you feel when I phoned you up out of the blue and asked if you wanted to do this after all this time
1: well actually relieved that somebody (laughs) had finally well not finally but remembered because it's 20 years coming up in October and I was going to put something in the paper Mm -hmm. then and um, I just can't believe it's 20 years since Mm -hmm. since that but I'm glad that somebody thinks that how horrific it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, no, I was really pleased. And I wanted to see what you looked like. <laughs> Do you know what was funny, though? When I spoke
0: to I phoned your husband, uh-huh. and he said that my name had cropped up yeah. two days before. Yeah. How odd.
1: I can't mind where we were, but with, um, I don't know what even thought it was. And he said, I wonder where she is now. And I knew you'd gone to America. Mm-hmm. No, Canada.
0: Mm-hmm. Canada, and, then, um,
1: Yeah, yeah. And I knew that. And um, but that was a wee while ago. so yes. it's, No, it's nice. It was quite funny. See the he d-
0: difference. <laughs> he
1: sw- he swore on the phone.
0: Yeah, he did. I said, "Do you remember me?" <laughs> he said, Shock. "I love bloody Truquair." <laughs> but but before I could call you, he said that he, he had to give you a buzz first yeah. and warn you because you yeah. still have a a yeah. phobia about the phone.
1: I kinda, I mean, it's some folk think it's really mad, but a ringing phone and a ringing phone. Oh, just, my stomach goes and I can't answer it. I can't, I've got to know. I mean, you can't know until you answer it, but fear oh. and tightness in my stomach before I get in, mean, a cold sweat before I answer it. And it's, it's something that stuck with me all that time because it rang from Melanie. We tried to get in touch, tried to get and there was no answer, no answer. And when we did answer it, <laughs> it was um, worst, worst worst news ever. It's it's almost like a form of post-traumatic
0: stress, isn't it, because that's the the trigger. The trauma related to answering the phone makes sense, as it was a ringing phone that signalled the moment Susan's life was shattered forever. She and her husband, Melanie's stepfather Paul, were on holiday in Spain with their five-year-old son Darren. It was his first holiday abroad. Melanie 22 and brother Kevin 24 were due to be sharing dog-sitting duties but Melanie didn't turn up nor did she go to work at Care Home Nazareth House.
1: Saturday we went to, um, we were traveling from Glasgow. Uh, I spoke to on the Friday night and I know because <laughs> it was something weird on EastEnders and I remember the guy getting I'm sure it was Martin Kemp.
0: Martin Kemp's the guy that was in Spandau Valley. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. And
1: I'm Hampton sure chap. he got... Because everybody was waiting for the verdict. And, I met, and we went on the, the phone and I said, Guilty, did you see that? She says, Guilty. Now that was like eight o'clock at night. That was the last time I spoke. And that's what we spoke about. Mm-hmm. And then we spoke about Kevin coming back and helping the dog with Kevin. So that was the last time. That's how I remember that. So we went went on the Saturday. And then... Um, went down to Glasgow we phoned and phoned and the, phoned, the flight was like in the middle of the night and phoned about 11, 12 before we went on and um, never thought nothing about it because there had been, she says, oh, I got an invite for something to go somewhere, Sunday's party. And I thought, oh, well, maybe she's just gone to that Can she's just gone. But then by the Monday I phoned back and Kevin had phoned and something like that and it says, mum, she hasn't turned up, so upset. it. But the, I think no, I the nuns had got in touch saying she shouldn't have turned up at work, which was unusual. But then um, he kind of said that um, she'd never been, um, she's, not, she's not here, and I just went, oh, just in the mood, and I just knew something had happened to her. I just knew something had happened to her then. And then it was frantic, absolutely frantic, trying to get through um to somebody it spoke. Well, I spoke to the, I spoke to the nuns, and she hadn't been. And then I spoke to, got, and finally got in touch with the local police station. It was Fiora, It was a receptionist, <laughs> and I'm screaming I know she hasn't. Been, you know her. She hasn't done something. I know there's something wrong because you know what she's like. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't. Have, and I don't want her treated like a missing person or something like that. I says there's something wrong. Mean. Yeah, there's something wrong. I said, you make a point, tell them, you tell them there's something wrong.
3: It's Paul Patrick,
4: I'm her stepdad. Unusual for Melanie not to get a hold of Melanie, you know. She's one of that, you could get her. You know, you phone something, you know you could get her.
3: She's, if she's working, she would let you know. They
4: phone and phone, still get gathered. She must be working, she phone and phone, she must be working the next day, phone and phone. Susan's just pacing the room, like, what's going on, you know? And then I got the phone call. It was Sergeant from guy Henry Thompson. And he phoned back and said there was a body found. And I think he better get home. That's all I got.
0: And then you had to tell Susan? I had
4: to tell Susan.
1: When you give birth, you automatically there's a noise comes out you, the final push. It, You can't do anything about And when I heard that, and it was like you're in the fetal position of the floor and I can still hear myself. It was like a wild animal. I've never, ever been like that before. And you just couldn't help it. And it was, I just, I don't know. It was just like, oh, deep, deep. It wasn't a scream even. It was just a, oh, indescribable noise. But then Darren was lying in his bed. But whatever it was, it didn't wake him, but I knew it was loud and I just went, I just thought, oh my God, something's happened to her. And I know it was weird, but I just said, nobody will ever pay for this. I, I, I didn't think she was sick.
3: Hi, I'm Sandy Kelman. I'm a retired Detective Chief Inspector uh, with Grampian Police. I was the Senior Investigating Officer during this murder inquiry. It was a Monday and I had been working a day shift at the police headquarters at Queen Street in Aberdeen. Um, I was actually on call, so I'd worked a normal shift during the day. I'd gone home. I got a call from the force control room telling me that Um, some officers had been to a house and they were concerned because relatives of uh, Melanie Sturton had been concerned they hadn't been able to contact her. And when the police officers had arrived, they had tried to open the door into her flat and when they had opened the door, they had found what appeared to be a body behind the door, sort of blocking the the, the door opening fully. Um, There was enough um, information in what they saw which... Caused them some concern and they decided to contact the duty CID officer, which was myself.
2: I'm James Henderson Kerr Grieve. At the time of Melanie, I'd been the senior in Aberdeen for about 10 years. It was My title was Senior Lecturer in Forensic uh, Pathology, which basically just means that I was a senior, the equivalent of a consultant in the NHS. Monday, the 11th of October 1999, at half past nine at night, uh, what was Grampian Police at that time? telephoned me and asked me if I would uh, go to 188 Great Western Road in Aberdeen, where, as as we describe it, where a young woman had been found dead in bedsit accommodation. Now, you you know, they they don't, the the police wouldn't naturally phone me for every death, every sudden unexpected death. So there would always be some little element of suspicion or something that, that was, you know, peculiar or very unusual about a body. But the impression that I had, and, and I'll just say it's the impression I had because that's all I can speak to, was that they weren't particularly concerned about the case because uh, the victim was behind a door that apparently couldn't be opened, so they weren't all that bothered about it, um, but you know they thought i they, they thought I should go out and have a look. Uh,
4: my name's Chris Gamicliffe, so I'm a forensic scientist and specifically a biologist, in this case, I was on call uh, so I got called to go to that address. And it's quite usual when you're, when you're called out to not know a great deal, uh, because the information is very, very sketchy. And at that time, I think we were told that two police officers had attended, the family had alerted the police because they were concerned about Melanie, hadn't heard from her, and two policemen had gained entry to the flat, had been able to look behind the door, saw what they thought was a body, and rightly had then withdrawn, uh, and had left it secure. So at that point, it's a matter of all the resources being drawn together um, and gathering at the crime scene to, to then plan what we, what we do next.
3: What happened then was that the forensic team have someone who puts on a forensic suit and actually goes in and videos the location touching nothing. They took the video out to a pod, which was uh, a sort of um, pod we put on the street outside the, the location and we and i'm saying we other detectives as well as the forensic team including the pathologist viewed the actual location through this video recording to try and ascertain what had happened but also so that the forensic team could decide how best to tackle their examination of the scene
4: and After that, myself and pathologist Jamie Greve, we, we then went in to sort of assess the crime scene, decide right, what are our next moves, and, and see what we were dealing with. Because at the moment, at that time, all you knew was simply had a, a body, maybe it's not a homicide at all, we, we don't know. So it might be uh, a medical condition, for example, it might be just simple something that has some innocent explanation. So at that time, you don't necessarily know, and it was confused a little by the fact that Melanie's body was wrapped up in a a duvet and bedding so it isn't initially apparent and what you can't do is simply walk in throw off the bedding and see what you're dealing with because what might be on the bedding could be from the assailant DNA or bloodstain so you want all that systematically recorded and trace evidence recovered from that before you then gradually unfold it and and see what we're dealing with. I I can
2: well remember that we went in expecting this Perhaps not to be all that serious, and taking one look, just from the doorway, and realizing that really this was something much, much worse. And I, I mean, I may say that that uh, that didn't happen until about um, I think it, I think it might have been another hour later, which is which is just not unusual. That um, I, in fact we were admitted to the room finally at a quarter to midnight, um, having seen the thing initially. We just felt that it was hugely suspicious. I often speak about intuition uh, in this regard. And you know, intuition is just about experience and wisdom and allowing the brain, I suppose, to gather all sorts of information all at once and process it as the human brain can in its context extremely quickly and come to a rapid response that says, I want to treat this as suspicious. A lot of forensic activity is about context. It's about it's about what you see in the context that you see it. Now there was certainly blood uh, just within the doorway, no doubt of that, um, and 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 blood may be suspicious, but there's lots of situations where um, blood can get around the place for natural reasons. Uh, uh, probably more frequently in suicides, perhaps, or other accidents. So it's not just the presence of the blood, although later you can look back and you can see and understand that the pattern of the blood is important. And that's uh, Chris Gunnycliffe's, one of Chris Gunnycliffe's particular areas of expertise, uh, whereas mine is really about the body. So inside this room, looking straight in from the door, and the door opens into the room, um, there's a sofa, the end of a sofa is directly in front. Between that sofa and the door lies Melanie's, uh, Melanie's body. And in particular, the upper half of the body, so certainly the head and, and most of the torso, find themselves enfolded in a duvet. So the duvet, half of the duvet is lying on the floor with Melanie's head and uh, uh, most of her torso lying on that duvet and then with the remainder of the duvet folded over to cover her body from the head end. And then in addition there was a sort of a throw, a rug of some description had been cast um, randomly really over the lower part of her body uh, and most of her legs. But her left leg is just sticking out close to the sofa and it, um, there, was, there was clear blood staining on the sole of her foot. And in particular on the sole of her foot uh, missing out the instep, if you will, so that it's as though she has trodden in blood, um, so it hasn't been been put onto her foot rather than her foot going into the blood at, at some stage, and uh, you know again, one looks back and says, well that, you know th- these are all elements that 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 make the whole thing suspicious.
4: it's a squeeze for the door because you could only just get past uh, Melanie 's body, uh, which is behind the, behind the, the door. To get into the living room, and it was immediately obvious there was a lot of blood smearing on the walls and a, a lot of blood staining. So immediately you begin to think at that point that you're dealing with something that's uh, rather more sinister than simply a medical condition and uh, and something a bit more rather more innocent. Uh, so at that point uh, we gradually sort of unravel layers, if you like, so folded the duvet back. And as a police photographer at that at that time. I've seen a crime photographer who then recorded that. So we're recording it in layers as we remove it. So unfold the duvet, photograph. Uh, unf- I think there was another, I think there was a throw there as well. Remove that or a fleece blanket to photograph again. Just gradually, uh, just gradually uncovering uh, Melanie's body. Uh, primarily because we want to see what sort of injury she's got and therefore what, a, what that would tell us. So she was face down, so the wounds weren't immediately apparent, but you could see where the duvet duvet was actually soaked in blood and saturated. So it was only when her body was rolled over that the extent of her her wounds was significant. Um, And looking back, it was was quite a a noticeable moment, really, because in a lot of crime scenes you don't necessarily recall uh, that sort of time, but there was a noticeable sort of draw of breath at the horrific nature of the throat injuries, because at that point, it still wasn't necessarily obvious what we were dealing with. And it was only in turning her over and seeing, particularly the, the gaping injuries to her throat, just what we were dealing with and how significant it was. And it, it's at that point you sort of suddenly realize, in, in my job, suddenly you're sort of, what you're doing in the next week or two has suddenly fallen apart. It sounds very trivial, in, in, you know you might say, but suddenly you're thinking, all of those things I had organized or planned, forget all of those, this is now suddenly taken a whole different context. Because you might just get called to these things and then you'll be back home again two hours later, it's a drug's death, it's, it seems to be relatively explainable and we'll wait for the results of a post-mortem the next day and you, you're back home. In this sort of instance that's the time you realise that isn't what we're dealing with and suddenly the whole context has changed, the whole landscape has changed and it's something very very different and that's when you're suddenly thinking right now we suddenly have to put a different hat on now and think quite what we're dealing with.
0: On the next episode of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, we'll uncover the terrifying last moments of Melanie's life and how her grieving family fell under suspicion because no one could fathom why anyone would want to kill this sweet innocent girl. The storyteller Murder Most Foul is written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquere. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or Acast. And there's more information about the case on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.